We're going to be talking about the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, and the Old Testament. Now, I always like to uh, be able to impart some information to you as we move along that will help you in your understanding of God's Word and certainly to help you in your effort to become obedient to God and more like Jesus Christ. Let Him into your life. This, this text talks about a New Testament, and that word testament is the same word in the, new, in the uh, Scriptures. That word testament is the same as the word covenant. So when we talk about a new covenant or a New Testament, we're talking about the same thing. Now, your Bible is divided into an Old Testament and a New Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, 66 books. This book, what we call the Old Testament, is not called the Old Testament by people who live under it. They, as a matter of fact, they resent that terminology. For them, it's the law, the law and the prophets. Now, as we read in the New Testament, as we read the words of Jesus Christ, He talks about the law and the prophets. So he's talking about a couple of different things. One is that the law, which was in, his, in effect, that was the covenant. And the prophets was, was all the information that surrounded that about the history of these Israelites and about their hopes and their promises, etc. What I want to do initially is to tell you that you are, and I am, totally familiar with a covenant. Now, I, I, I don't think I'm talking to anyone who does not understand what a covenant is. A covenant is, is a contract where two parties come together and say, okay, I will do this if you will do that. Now, you know a contract in terms of if you buy a home or if you buy a car, if you buy a television set on time when you have to make payments, then you enter into an agreement with someone who has the ability to give you the money or give you the what you're wanting to buy in terms of what you will do in order to satisfy your agreement with them. So that's that's a contract. And basically, when we go back into the Bible and we look at the old covenant, it's the old contract. And the New Testament is the new contract. It's a contract. Sometimes we use the term warranty also, and that'll come into play to some degree. You know what a warranty is? When you buy a microwave at the store and it has a warranty on it, that means that that is going to expire a week after <laughs> you finish paying for it. So, but the warranty actually is the, is the guarantor of someone who says, if you buy this product from me, I will stand behind it. And I will make sure that you can enjoy it. And if something happens, I will replace it. That's a warranty. Now, I want to take a look at, at the Bible concept of what we're talking about when we talk about a covenant, a contract, a warranty. In the Old Testament, and, and one, one other thing before I get off of this particular point, we always, when we come to a contract, we always do something in order to make sure that that contract is valid. It's either by putting a seal on it, a stamp, or putting your signatures on it, or exchanging something. 
that will that will make you guarantee or make you part of the contract. You can think of this in terms of a marriage. Now that's a very loose contract, isn't it? Because you all you have to guarantee that contract is your word. So when you stand up and say in the presence of people, I take this woman to be my lawfully wedded wife, I'll love, honor, and cherish her, sickness and health, prosperity, adversity, and I'll keep myself to her as long as both shall live. That's your word. Now that, that's a contract. She'll say the same thing about you. Now you've, made a, you've entered into a contract. And your contract is only as good as you are. Isn't that correct? You're the one who made that contract, and so it's as good as you, and you're as good as your word. We used to, when I was younger, we used to be able to borrow money on a handshake. Uh, has anybody ever done that before? I, I've done it several times. My parents did it, and their parents' parents did it. That doesn't work anymore. We, we put it in writing. So now then we're going to talk about a contract that went into writing. But before we do that, what I'd like to do is take you back to a time when there was a promise made that was not entered into by two parties by exchanging anything. What I want to do is, is take a look at, just to get us to the contract stage, take a look at a promise that God had made to a man by the name of Abraham. His name, first of all, is Abram. So if you'd like to look in Genesis chapter 12, if you have your Bible, this is in what we call the Old Testament. Actually, it's in the Law and the Prophets in the Prophets. But basically, God came to Abram and He said, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your, I'm going to bless you, your children. I'm going to make you a blessing and I'm going to bless all nations through you. So he made Abraham, right, let's, let's make sure we use this proper term here. He used the term Abram. That was his name, A-B-R-A-M. And so he said in the first part, he said, Get out of your country and come with me. I'll make you a great nation. That's in verse 2. I will bless you, make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Boy, you know, there's a lot of power in this. And I want you to understand that these were not empty promises. This is a promise. And God is telling Abram, he's saying, I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you a big name, a great name. And I'm going to make you a great family. And I'm going to make you a great blessing. Wherever you go, you're going to bless other people around you. And I, I'm going to bless all nations through you. So that last part of that promise to Abraham, and it wasn't a contract as such, it was a promise. So God just made a promise. He said, Abraham, come with me. I'm going to do three things for you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you prosperous. And I'm going to protect you. In addition to which, of course, everybody around you is going to benefit. So, we know that Abram got up and left. Let's see, uh, see if I can get our other map here to show you what, he, what God told Abram. Those are three, three texts. If you can see that, I don't know how familiar you are with ancient history and geography, 
But that's an area that God told Abram, and we find it also in chapter 15 of Genesis, when he repeats the, the promise to him. That, that is an area, that's a monstrous area of land, really. Uh, it goes from the river Euphrates, it goes up to Iran, and back down into Egypt, to the Nile River, up to the Euphrates River. And then south into Arabia, and north almost into Asia. I, I tried to find out how big that land was. The land that Israel occupies right now is about the size of New Jersey. But this is more than the size of New Jersey. This is about three times the size of the state of Missouri. It's a big piece of land. And God said, I'm going to give you this. In chapter 15, he outlines it and tells him how big it's going to be. And in, in addition to that, he said, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you this land. Now that particular land, according to archaeologists and those who know geography and those who know the background of the history of this world, tell us that that's probably the cradle of civilization. Probably the original site of the Garden of Eden. So now then he's saying, Abram, I'm going to give you some land. And by the way, it wasn't just land. It's a, it was the best land in the world. I'm going to give you that land. Okay. He's not telling Abram that he has to do anything. He's not saying I'm entering into a contract with you. He's just promising him. He's saying, this is yours. I'm going to give you this. And he tells him what it is. And in order to, to substantiate that, he, in order to put his stamp on it, he, took, he said, I, I, I'm going to take a heifer that's three years old, and I'm going to take a she-goat that's three years old, and I'm going to take a ram that's three years old, and a turtle dove and a pigeon. So Abram brought these to it. Then Abraham fell asleep, or Abram fell asleep. He fell asleep, and during that time, after well, basically before he fell asleep, God had him divide these animals, cut them in half, and lay them on each side, shedding some blood. Do you know, have you ever heard anybody say, I've written this contract in blood? Where do you think they got that? Okay. The ancient peoples did that. So they cut these animals in half, parted them in half, made a little space between them, except for the turtle dove and the pigeon, which they didn't. They must have placed one on one side and the other on the other. When Abram went to sleep, he saw a vision and he saw God pass between these two sections of animals, dead animals. And in that way, God verified the fact that he was going to give Abram that land. That was his promise it made in blood when you get a guarantee of something it depends on who's making that guarantee i'd like to tell you all about studebaker i don't know how many of you know about studebaker i i used to own a studebaker car years ago studebaker was one of the first automobiles ever made it was the first electric automobile i think that was ever made in this country in the early 1900s Studebaker started out making wagons. You say, well, what kind of wagons? If you've ever seen the Budweiser beer wagon, Studebaker made that. He made that. The company made that. And that was one of the finest wagons in the world. Still is. One wagon like that cost more in the 
end of the 19th century and 1800s, it cost more than a, probably a Rolls Royce would today. It was $20,000 for a wagon like that. Studebaker made wagons. That's how they started out. Then they made wheelbarrows. When they found out about the gold rush, one of the Studebaker brothers came to California, saw what, that what they needed worse was a wheelbarrow. So they invented wheelbarrows, and they made wheelbarrows, made a fortune in wheelbarrows. So we're, we're talking about Studebaker. I'm thinking, well, here's a company. If I buy a car from Studebaker, and they give me a warranty, I'm as good as gold. Good as gold. Uh, they're they're, they're going to stand behind that, and if anything happens to my Studebaker, they'll take care of it. But in 1966, they went out of business. Now what happens, everybody's bought a Studebaker, bought a Studebaker Lark. I wanted one, I didn't get one. But what happens, well, somebody bought one, Studebaker Lark. Okay. What happens is, uh, uh, someone comes, comes along and says, hey, listen, I'm going to guarantee this, whatever you're buying, the item you're buying, for life. And you think, whose life? The life of the item? I'm going to guarantee this as long as it exists? No. My life? No, they're not going to guarantee it. What are they, do? What are they saying they're going to guarantee this for life? Well, if they don't live long enough to take care of that guarantee, it's not going to work. Plus the fact, whatever they sell me or whatever I buy, I have to maintain it. For instance, if I buy a refrigerator, or well, let's, let's not use a refrigerator because it's, it, 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 nobody uses it this way, but I was going to say, I buy a refrigerator and I open the doors and let it try to cool the house. They're not going to stand behind that warranty. They're going to find out that I abused the warranty, because the warranty demands that I somehow maintain it. But if I buy an oven, and I open the oven door, like a lot of people do, and try to heat the house with it, it voids my warranty. Isn't that correct? The, what I'm getting at is, when God told Abram, I'm going to give you this land, He did not require Abram to do anything. The Bible says Abram believed God. That was it. And God gave it to him. God gave it to him. He didn't say, Abram, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do something else. Abram did everything God said. But all, all he did was, Abram believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. That's in chapter 15. In chapter 17, now, this gets a little more difficult because Abram, he asked a question. He said, he, he was 99 years old at this point. And he, God said, I'm going to make you a great, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. And Abram looks around and he says, I don't have any children. How can this happen? And that's what he asked. He said, how can, how can this be? And God said, he was going to he was going to give him a son. And he said, well, Abram thought, well, maybe Ishmael. Now, Abram and Sarah had gotten together and said, we can't have any children. Maybe you should have a child by my handmaid, Hagar. And God said, no, that's not what I had in mind. He wanted, he wanted one from Abram and Sarai. That's her name, S-A-R-A-I. 
later Abraham and Sarah. Okay, so here we have it. God is saying, I'm going to make you a, a great name. I'm going to make you a nation. And Abram is saying, how is this going to happen? God said, I'm, I'm going to give you a son. And you know what Abram did? He laughed. He said, I'm 99 years old. I'm 99 years old and you're going to give me a son. And later on, in chapter 18, 17, 18 of Genesis, later on, a couple of men, angels, appeared to Abram and Sarah, and their names now Abraham and Sarah. And they appeared to them on the plains of Mamre, and, and they told her again, she's going to have a child. And she laughed. She was 10 years younger than Abraham. But you know what? A year later, Isaac. Isaac came along. So now the family's starting. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. I want to keep something in mind. You Bible students, as you're reading the Bible, I want you to understand something. These people took it seriously that God was going to bless them. Not only put them in the land, He was going to bless them. What He was going to do, it doesn't, it doesn't do any good if you get some land if you can't do anything with it. But God was going to make sure that He was going to bless him. You know what, Abraham... By the time things all sort of shook out for him, he became a prince in that country. He was strong enough and had enough people in his coterie of people, in it, not just his family, but in his servants. He had enough people to, to put an army in the field of 300 armed men, warriors capable of going to battle, and went out and rescued his nephew Lot, because Lot had gotten in trouble. Sometimes uncles do that, don't they? Ring, hello. Hey, Abram, I'm in jail. <laughs> Can you help me? He didn't have a lawyer to send. He sent 300 armed men. Got him back. Brought him back. Abraham was a prince. He had enough flocks. He was fabulously wealthy. Understand that. What God was telling him was, I'm going to bless you. And I'll tell you what, when God blesses someone, they're blessed. He was fabulously wealthy. Now what impression would this have on Isaac? Isaac's got to be thinking, well, I've got to carry the name down because I have to inherit what God has given. He's not only going to get the land, he's going to have to get the blessings. He's going to have to take the birthright. And that's how they thought about it. If you're going to get something that your father has, it has to come through the firstborn. Then the next firstborn, Isaac and Jacob. And then from then on, the firstborn, they, they just kept passing that name down. Until finally there were seven, 75 of these guys. Abraham finally had a family, by the time everything sort of got organized, had 75 people. If you include Joseph, he had 76. But he had 75 people, and they were in their own country, in the area where Abraham had lived. And they had a famine. Now, don't misunderstand. These people were still wealthy people. Abraham and his family, now it's, and now it's the 12 tribes of Israel, called the 12 tribes of Israel, but they're all related to this man. And they're all prospering. But there's a famine in the land, and Joseph is down in Egypt. Joseph sends for them because they, they want to come down and spend some of their money 
There's a famine in the land, but they've got enough money to provide for their whole family to go get provisions somewhere else and bring them back. So they did that twice, if you can imagine. Two times. They had enough money to, to make two, two trips down into Egypt to provide for their whole families. All right. Now they get down into Egypt with Joseph. And you know where they go? Joseph says, well, the, the, the uh, Pharaoh says, I don't know that we want them among us. He didn't know much about them. So what he did was, he said, let's, let's put them up in the land of Goshen. So 75 of them went into the land of Goshen. And I'll tell you what happened when they got up in the land of Goshen. They prospered because God had made that promise. I'll take care of you. So here they are in the land of Egypt, 75 of them, and they're prospering. They're doing well. They're doing so well that after a while it took them, four, they stayed there 400 years. They were doing so well that the Pharaoh looked up there and he said, Hey, they're going to outnumber us. They're going to they're get beyond us. We've got to do something. So they put them to work. Busy work. We'll have you, have you make bricks. That's what they did. Had them make bricks. So they were there making bricks. But I want you to understand something. And I, I hope you can understand it with me. These people were getting wealthy. And you know what else? They were making the Egyptians wealthy. Because God said, I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. And it was happening. So Moses comes along and God said, go get my children. Exodus chapter 3. Go get them. Tell Pharaoh I want them. Now why wouldn't he want, if these people provide a, a threat to the Egyptians, why wouldn't Pharaoh want to get them out of town? Why wouldn't he want to get rid of them? You know why? Because they were prospering because the Israelites were prospering. Everybody was doing well. You always want the lucky guy around you, don't you? If you're going to take an airplane trip and a rickety airplane, you want a lucky guy with you. Somebody that survived one of these bad crashes and, and uh, used up all his bad luck. Now all he's got left is good luck. Well, the point is, here these people were, and they were providing prosperity to the Egyptians. And guess who knew about it? Old Pharaoh knew about it. Now what happened? He said, okay, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, uh, no, I'm not going to do it. So God sent the plagues. Everybody was plagued except the Israelites. So everybody was overcome with swarms of flies. But the Egyptians, the old Pharaoh looked up in Goshen, north of him, and said, hey, these guys don't have any flies. What's going on? Then, they, then the flies left. Then they got frogs. Then they got lice. Then they got blames. Boils. They, all these things going on. And, and who, was, who was not being affected? The Israelites. Pharaoh said, No, I can't let you go. Until finally, the death of the firstborn came along. Now remember, firstborn, their idea was 
that the firstborn carried the actual blessing from one family to the next, from one generation to the next. Okay, so now Pharaoh loses his firstborn and he drives the children of Israel out. But he thinks it over. Why are we doing so well? Because they are in our midst. He did not want to lose the goose that laid the golden egg. That's what Israel was to them. They blessed them. God was blessing everyone around them. Now, it may be hard to understand, but people have known that. They knew that down to the time of Jesus. When Jesus got here, the people that Jesus was talking to knew that. They knew that what God, that's what God was doing. They were aware of that. They had their oral history. They had their written history. They had the history and the information from all the nations around them. They knew that when God blessed Israel, He prospered everybody around them. They knew that. And so what did they say when Jesus came? When John the Baptist said, you need to repent, they jumped up and said, no, we're Abraham's children. Oh, there's the promise. The point we're going to make here is that these people that came out of Egypt and that Moses took out of Egypt, they took them to a land that flowed with milk and honey. That's what they called it. That's what he called it. That land we're looking at up there, the one that flowed with milk and honey, that was a wonderful, wonderful land, and they were heading for it. Okay. But how do you keep these people together now? They're not Abraham. They get out in the desert. They get out in the wilderness. The first thing they do, they start complaining and start moaning and start bellyaching about how God is taking care of them or not taking care of them. I want some water. Whine, whine, whine. I want some meat. Whine, whine, whine. They didn't believe that God could take care of this. But He was. He was taking care of it. He gave them water out of a rock. He gave them manna, bread from heaven. He gave them flesh, birds, fowls. He, they, he, he made sure that their, their, their herds did not diminish. They could eat anything they wanted because God would replenish their stores. Wow! I come from a background where I've been around farmers all of my life and ranchers. If... The fellow came along and said, okay, I'm going to inherit a, a ranch. I'm going to inherit a 10,000 acre ranch. All right. And I'm going, to, I'm going to put my herds on that ranch. And you know what? Uh, I'm going to be able to raise all my cattle and not a one of them will die. They will all calve in season. And my Herds will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and then on this land. Well, wouldn't you like to inherit that, that sort of land? Here's a farmer who says, okay, I'm, I've got this land, but the land's not going to do you any good unless you can raise something on it. And so what you're told is, the one who sells you this land is, I'm going to sell you the land and you will never have to worry about a dry season. Never have to worry about it. You'll always get crops. You'll never have mildew. You'll always have a full barn. You will always be able to provide for your family. You'll never have to go through a drought. 
Wouldn't you want that piece of land? That's what God told Israel that they could have. That's what he told Abram. And that's what he told these people, 75 of them. But here they are, heading for the land of flows of milk and honey, and they knew that they were the golden goose. They knew that. But they were complaining. All of those over the age 20 died. They didn't get to the land of promise. They didn't make it. But how do you keep these folks together? How do you make sure that they're going to stay on that land, that they're going to do what they should do in order to maintain? There was, God did, did write a contract, by the way, in chapter 17 of Genesis. He said, every male child of you shall be circumcised. That's how you'll know that you are a Hebrew, that you are the descendant of Abraham. That's why the issue of circumcision was such an issue during the days of Jesus. Because people kept thinking, well, if I'm circumcised, I get some land, and I get the blessings, and nothing will ever go wrong for me again. Everything's going to be wonderful. What happened was, when the children of Israel, as they are going on their journey, God said, I'm going to write a new contract. And this is what is called the Old covenant. Moses went up on the mountain and there he received the written contract that God was going to make with these people. Written contract. In chapter 24, verse 3 through 8, he took 70 of the elders of Israel with him. They got the contract, came back down. They sacrificed some animals they had the book written, the tables of stone. Let's call the tables of stone in 2 Corinthians 3 at verse 7 in talking about the contrast of the covenant. They took the tables of stone. They made a sacrifice to show how serious it was. How serious is this contract? It is a blood contract. They sacrificed the animals. Moses then took hyssop and he sprinkled the blood on the people he sprinkled the blood on the book and he said, this is the contract that you have agreed to. Now, in order for God to bless these people, they had to maintain their contract. Correct? We have to do what God said He wants, you to, wants me to do. And God said, I, I don't want any other gods before me. God said, I don't want, I, I don't want you to make any idols. God said, I, I want you to love your neighbor. Here God set forth stipulation for the contract. If you'll keep this contract, I will bless you. I will bless you. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, and in the first 14 verses, after they got all the contract done, all written up, then Moses stood up on the Mount Ebal, and he, while he was re he read the contract, and he said, If you will keep this contract, God will bless you in the field. He will bless you in the city. He'll bless the fruit of your womb. You won't have a miscarriage. You won't lose a child. He'll bless you. He'll take care of all, the, all your needs. He'll make sure that whatever you do will prosper. On the other hand... If you don't keep your end of the contract, let me just put it this way. I have, I, I, I bought a wheelbarrow. 
And it had a warranty on it. And that warranty said that you, you can only put so much of a load in your wheelbarrow. It'll only carry, what, 700 pounds. It's warranted. But I decide I'm going to put 1,500 pounds in it. And I blow the tire out. And so I go back to the, the one who warranted it. And I said, I need a new tire at your expense. And he said, did you, did you put more than 500 pounds in it? What did you put in Well, I, sure, but you should give me a new tire. He's not going to do it. God set forth a contract, and he sealed it with blood, and he said, if you will do this, I will bless you. I'll bless you in the field, bless you in the city. I'll make sure that nothing happens to you. I'll put an umbrella of protection around you, and I won't let anybody hurt you. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 26, he tells the children of Israel, I will not let the sword pass through you. Guess what's going to happen if you start prospering? When you, when you win the lottery, what happens? You have relatives come out of the, out of the hole everywhere. They're all coming. They want a part of it. You know what was going to happen when Israel started prospering? Somebody's going to look at them and say, Hey, I want some of that. And they're going to come in and try to get it. And God said, Not only will I prosper you, I will protect you, and I will not let the sword pass through you. What a wonderful promise that is. Not only is He going to prosper me, not only is He going to make my name great, not only am I going to have a great reputation, but I'm going to be able to enjoy all of this and nobody can take it away from me. Wow! God's bank. Okay. They sealed this covenant with blood because the life is in the blood. That's how serious this covenant was. It is a serious covenant. I'll bless you in the city, in the fields, fruit of your ground, your cattle, your kind, your sheep, your basket, your store. Whenever you come in to this land, whether you go in or out, I'll take care of you. You'll be blessed. All you have to do is keep the commandments of the Lord. Walk in His ways. That's what Moses said. That's what you have to do. Quit cursing. Quit coveting. Quit murdering. Quit fornicating. Hey, live a decent life. As a matter of fact, he said, I'll give you a Sabbath day. I'll give you a day off every week. I'll give you the Sabbath. What I'll do is, I'll make sure that you have enough on Friday that you don't have to do anything on Saturday. Take time off. The Sabbath was made for man, Jesus said, not man for the Sabbath. Take the time off. Don't worry about it. And as a matter of fact, every seven years, I'm going to give you a year off. I'll give you, you know what it's called today? A sabbatical. Every seven years, take a year off. I'll take care of you. And you know what? He did. And they knew it. They knew it. Well, how did this work out? How did it work out? Well, he said, I, I'm, the flip side of this is, if you don't obey my covenant, if you don't maintain the contract, he said, I'll destroy you. I'll send the pestilence among you. I'll send the plague among you. Your sky is going to be brass above your head and the ground is iron between, below your feet. He said, I won't give you any rain and you'll be smitten before your enemies. 
Well, you know what? That promise was fulfilled. The, the record in the Bible tells us that Joshua brought the children of Israel. When Moses died, Joshua brought them into the land. He brought them across the river, the, uh, the uh, river Jordan, brought them into the land. and They crossed the river and they made monuments and they, they set up, they set up uh, statues, not statues, but rocks with all the commandments on them and said, okay, let's be reminded of that, the fact that God has given us this. In Judges 2 at verse 10, then, how did it work? Well, Joshua 21, verse 43-45 says, There failed not any of the good things which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. They got it all. They had it all. Wow. They had it all. How did it work? Joshua died, and there arose a generation that didn't know God. A generation that didn't know God. What happened? Well, when things go bad, we need God. When things go good, we don't need anybody. Isn't that correct? Idolatry in that country, idolatry in that land, was was place where they had the parties. That was the party time. That was a place where everybody could come and get drunk and, and kick off all traces and get into a happy hour that went all day and all night and into the next day. They danced and they, they fornicated. They did everything. They just let themselves go, whatever they wanted to do. Sounds familiar? Oh, it sure does. So that's what they did because they had plenty. They had plenty, but they wanted to have some fun. After he died, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, says, There arose another generation after them that knew not the Lord, and know yet the works which he had done for Israel. Verse 13 says, They forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and Asheroth. That's, that's the idols. The idols. In verse 16 of Judges chapter 2, The Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. So when they'd, they'd get into a problem, they'd call to God, and God would send a judge, bring them back. In the days that followed, these are the commandments that... That's why that covenant is called, that said it was written in stone. It's a commandment of flesh and not of spirit. So, when the promise was fulfilled, everything went fine until the people decided they wouldn't keep up their end of the commandments, end of the contract. Now, what I, I said all that to get to this point. They realized when they realized that they were doing wrong, they needed someone to help them get back into the good graces of God. I'm going broke, someone says. My cattle are dying, another one says. My crops are failing, another one says. What's going on? And a judge rises up and says, hey, I'll get you back to God and things will get better. And they did. The judges brought them back. Gideon, Jephthah, Samuel, until finally they said, well, this isn't good enough, we need a king, and so they got a king, Saul. And then finally, they just finally completely abandoned God and forgot the contract and still expected to get the benefits. They still wanted the benefits. Asa came along, the king of Judah, and he realized what was going bad, and he he said... uh, he said, put away from you all the abominations of the nations. 
And so he went out and cut down all the groves, the tree areas where they worshipped, and he tore, tore down the temples and, and he tore down the monuments and so forth. He said, let's get back to God. Let's get back and get our, co- get our covenant, get our contract under control again. And it says in Second Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 8, that they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord their God. There's that contract again. What were they doing? Let's renew our contract. Right? Let's renew it. So I bought a car, and I'm almost out of warranty. And so I come to the dealer and I say, let's renew our contract. I, don't, I can't pay for it yet. So let's renew our contract. Let's, let's make sure that I, I can take care of that. But let's renew it. So I get another three or four years under warranty. I pay for it, of course. So that's what they were saying. Let's renew our contract. And God let them. He let them. You know what happened? Yes. They went back the way they were before. They got fat and happy. They said, oh, well, everything's going well. Why should we have to be restricted? We can go out and play again. Let's go down to the casino where they have all the fun. That was the place there. And they, they went to the, to the uh, idols. They said, okay, let's have a party again. And they did. And guess what? God's contract said, called for, when you do that, I'm going to hurt you. You're going to hurt. And it did. Josiah came along a little later, and this is a very interesting one. And this was just before they, carried, they were carried into Babylonian captivity, the king of Judah. And he, it says that he, he, sent, he sent the priest into the house of God in Jerusalem. That's the one that Solomon had built. So he sent Hilkiah in. He said, I want you to go in there and, and uh, count the money. Because people gave money at that time. And it went into the temple treasury. And, and he, Josiah said, go, go count the money. See how much we've got. Because we, we, want, we want to do some remodeling. So Hilkiah got in there. And he began scrubbing around and scrounging around. And you know what he found? He found a copy of the contract. Wow! A copy of the contract. So he brought it to, he brought it to Josiah and he said, Guess what we've got? And Josiah read it and he tore off his clothes and jerked his hair out and put ashes on it and said, we're in trouble. We're in violation of the contract. No wonder things are going bad. And so Josiah then read the contract. And he read it to the people. He said, you, you're going to have to make some changes. Things are going bad. Here's why they're going bad. And so at the end of that, it said he, he read them the, the uh, book that he'd read, that he'd found. And at verse, chapter 23, verse 1 through 3, it says, He gathered all the men of Judah and all the people and read the words of the book of the contract of the covenant. And the king made a covenant to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes and with all their heart and soul. Okay. Now then we're back, we're back in, in business again. We're going to do okay. But it didn't work. Hosea said they backslid. Have you ever heard that term? Backslider? Well, they went back to what they'd been doing. So, in the days of the last kings of Hezekiah, Jotham, Ahaz, the king of the, uh, the Babylonians came and took this 
the people from Israel, or people from Judah, took them into captivity. And there they sat for 70 years. 70 years. And they were in trouble. Finally, they said, hey, we've got to get out of this mess. And Ezra found a copy of the book. And so he said, he found the contract. And so he got all the people together, him and Nehemiah. He got the people together and he read in their ears. It took them seven days. Seven days. Well, he's actually reading the book of, uh, most of the book of Exodus. He's reading the book of Leviticus. And he's reading the book of Deuteronomy. Those three books, part of Exodus and most of the other two books. He's reading those books and it takes him seven days. And some of those days they're sitting out in the rain listening to it. And when he got through, they all said, they all said, hey, we need to renew our covenant, renew our contract. Now, he did. God did renew it again. But when Jesus came to this earth, you know what they were wanting? They were wanting a renewal of their contract when Jesus came. John said, you need to repent. You need to get your act together. And they said, we don't need to. And John said, uh, you, you, you vipers, who's warned you of the flee from the wrath to come? They said, we don't have to worry. We're Abraham's children. We're heirs of this promise. And they knew exactly what the promise was. We're heirs of that promise. God's going to take care of us. They wanted a renewal of the contract. What did they want Jesus to do? They wanted whoever the Messiah was to come and approach God and renew the contract. But Jesus came and he said, no, we're going to trash this one. We're going to make a new covenant. Well, and that's what we're reading in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. And you know why they had to have a, have a new one? It's from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 30, 31 through 34. But in Hebrews it's quoted. The writer of the book of Hebrews quotes this. And he says, the reason we're going to have to make a new one is you couldn't keep the old one. You couldn't keep the old one. It says, I'm, going to, I'm just going to read this because it's, it's a quotation from Jeremiah. It says at verse 7, if that first covenant, that first contract had been faultless, then no place should have been sought for the second. Finding fault with them, he said, The days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made to their fathers. In the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, they continued not in my covenant. I regarded them not, saith the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God. They shall be to me a people. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. All shall know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant he has made the first old. Now that which decays and wax old is ready to vanish away. I'm going to make a new one. I'm going to make a new contract. And that new contract is not going to be like the old one. The old one was Abraham's name was going to be made great. 
The old one was, I'll bless, all, I'll bless the nations. I'll bless everybody that blesses you. I'll curse everybody who curses you. That was, that was the promise. Then the contract was, if you'll keep my laws, I will take care of you. Now God said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going to make a new one. Well, what, what about that contract? Would you rather have the old one? Would you rather think, if, if I'll obey the Lord, He'll make me wealthy. He'll take care of me. You hear that sometimes from televangelists. If you'll send them a donation, and if you'll, if you'll subscribe to what they're teaching, you'll get rich. Now that's, that's not what God promises in this new one. Well, maybe I won't get sick. Well, that was the old contract. That was the old one. That's not the new one. Well, maybe I'll, I'll, be a, I'll, I'll have a great name. Maybe, maybe I can trace my ancestry back to Abraham and, and everybody will admire me and everybody around me will do well. That's, that's the old contract. That was the old one. But we've got a new one. Well, why, why should I want a new one? Why shouldn't I? I, I want to renew the old one. That sounds better. Doesn't it? In the book of Hebrews, and this is the book that we're, that we're taking this from, when we talk about the new covenant, the new contract, it says that it is a better covenant. The word better covenant means a stronger one. It has more teeth in it. It's a stronger covenant. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, it says, The law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. These people just couldn't get it right. It has a better guarantor, one who, who has made more promises. Hebrews 7 verse 22 says, For so much was Jesus made a surety of a, of a better covenant. A surety means stronger. He's the, he has the stronger covenant. We have a better promise. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says, Now has He obtained a more excellent ministry, by which also He is the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. What could be better to a farmer than to know that his land, when he, when he planted his seed, that when he harvests it, it's going to go over into the next crop and he'll never miss a crop. What could be better than that? What could be better than a person who said, I'm going, to, I'm going to invest my money in the stock market. And God says, if you do, Bill, your stock will just go up and never go down. What could be better than that? What could be better than to tell me that, that all my children will be safe and comfortable and healthy? What could be better than to tell me that I'll be healthy and I'll never, I'll never suffer an unhealthy moment? That's a, that's a, wouldn't that be the kind of covenant you'd want? It says that Jesus has got a better covenant. I'm going to tell you something real quick. It has a better substance. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Didn't Jesus say not to lay your treasures up on this earth? Don't get too attached to your car. Because that car won't always need a driver. You'll be gone. Don't get too attached to your house. 
Don't get too attached to your things. I've got stuff. I want my stuff. I want my stuff around me. Don't get too attached. How about my gold? How about my goods? I've got them in a bank. I don't know. Maybe the bank's going to fail. I don't know. But we have a better covenant and it has more substance, the Bible says. More something standing under it. That's God. And we have a better resurrection. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. These people died in faith, he says. The heroes heroes of, of Hebrews 11 that they might attain a better resurrection. When Jesus got here to this earth, there were two religious organizations, two religious churches, you want to call them churches? Sadducee Church, exactly three, Essenes, Sadducees, and Pharisees. You know what they were arguing about? Whether or not there was a resurrection. That was their big contention. And yet the Bible says, our, the covenant we have has a better resurrection. So, that resurrection is Jesus Christ. Now the Bible said, as we were reading Hebrews chapter 8, you don't have to teach your neighbor and teach your friend, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. They had to teach everybody, just like Josiah had to get the law out and said, Here, here's, your, here's your contract. What contract do we have? We have a contract called Jesus Christ. He is our covenant. God said, I know you can't make it on your own. I'm going to send somebody down there to take care of you and bring you home. And that's where you're going to get it. I don't know what heaven looks like. You don't either. Nobody knows what heaven looks like. So we have to step out on what is called faith. Is it going to be better, Lord? He says it is. What do you say? Yes, Lord, or no, Lord? What do you say? Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to go with him like Abraham. This covenant require, doesn't require me to look at a long list of things that I can do this, I can do that. If you do this, I'll do that. This covenant says, I have sent my son. He'll make sure that you get here. You just have to get with him. He has to be with you and he'll take you home. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27 says, We are all the children. They were arguing about who was children of Abraham and who wasn't. That was a big issue in Jesus' time. They were saying, Hey, if you want to go to heaven, you're going to have to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, No, you don't. The writers of the New Testament says, No, you don't. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. You've got to step out with Jesus. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't, know, I don't know what tomorrow's going to look like. I don't know how I'm going to get through the next few days. But I trust that God will get me through. I don't have a promise that everything I do is going to turn out right. I know better. I know that if I invest in the stock market, it'll go down. I know that. If you want to know when to short a stock, let me know and I'll invest in it. Then it'll go down. You'll make money and I'll go broke. That's, that's my luck. So... I don't have that promise. What the promise I have is, Jesus said, I've got a better covenant. I've got a better deal. You want it? I'll take you to heaven. I'll take you to heaven with me. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, 
You have put on Christ. In Christ. So, the new covenant is to all nations. And you know what? How serious was that covenant? It is sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's about that's the best guarantee you'll ever have in your whole life. Sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I trust that you want to you want to be under that contract. You don't you don't have to you don't have to sign anything. But you have to make an oral agreement, you know what? You don't have anything to sign. But Romans chapter ten, verse nine and ten says that that we confess his name. If we confess his name, that he'll he'll honor us. We have to confess the name of Jesus Christ. That's an oral contract we have got. Lord, I will do it. I believe that you are the Christ. That's what Abraham did. He said, I believe, and off he went with him. If we believe, off we go with him. That's what he's promised. God help you make that decision either today or whenever you want to make it. God help you make it before you have to leave this poor earth. Shall we stand together and sing the song of invitation?